Welcome everyone to the Amazing Humans Being Show. I am Nar Martinez, your host, and I've had the distinct pleasure of getting to know today's guest, Sarah Heath, coming on, I believe, three years now. Sarah is, among many things, an ordained elder within the United Methodist Church and the lead pastor of the First United Methodist Church of Costa Mesa. Sarah is also an athlete, an author. Her book, What's Your Story? Seeing Yourself Through God's Eyes. She is a sought-after speaker and a podcast host. She is a wonderful friend and an amazing human being. I'm thrilled to have Sarah as the first guest on the Amazing Humans Being Show. And welcome, Sarah, to the show. Thank you so much. I, I like being on a podcast that's called Amazing Human Being. I love that. It's clever. Tell me about it. What makes it clever to you? Because I think most people are amazing humans, and it's the idea of just being is what makes you amazing. Yes. Right? So it's not, an, it's not an amazing human being, but amazing humans being. I you like got that. it. You got it. Now, Sarah, I, I love to tell my version of how we met. Okay, and I'm excited. <laughs> the way I put it is late one night in the mountains of North Carolina, outside of a tavern, I met this amazing person named Sarah Heath. And she was accompanied by her bodyguard, Mike McCark. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't meet in the cabin. We met at, uh, outside of a pub, right? In, yeah. Outside yeah. of a pub in Hot Springs, North Carolina, the uh, night or so before the Wild Goose Festival officially started. Right, and we were going to share a cabin, but I actually didn't know you, which was part of my um, my adventure of Wild Goose was being in a cabin, and I only knew one other human that was going to be in the cabin. There was lots of rooms, obviously, but I didn't know anyone, which for me, when it comes to, like, I have a terrible sleep issues, and so I have to, like, kind of control my sleep situation. So that was a very, like, releasing of, like, I can't control this. I'm just going to be with a big group of people. And so it was, it was such an adventure for me, even meeting you guys and being like, all right, these are the humans I'm going to share space with. And it turned out to be one of the biggest blessings of the entire festival. But it was, that was a, for sure, I was a little trepidatious. Like, you know, I've never gone to a speaking event where they don't take care of my housing for me or, you know, and so I had to do all of that for myself, my travel arrangements, my housing. And that's what makes Wild Goose um, such a different event because it's crowdsourcing. But uh, it's the only crowdsourcing event that I do. And so I, I really felt sort of like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? But I'm so glad I did um, and took a chance on it because I've met some of my favorite humans, including yourself, out of that. And so it was a really good experience. But yeah, that's how we met, outside of a tavern. Outside I think there's like one tavern. bar there, right? I've only been to one, one bar, bar and that's probably it. Yeah, I think it's the Iron Horse Lounge or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. And we got the chance to uh, meet uh, your buddy, Mike. I think he was yep. actually uh, watching over you, although he didn't stay in the cabin with us. He came up he to the not. cabin and stayed for hours getting to know us before uh, he would go back <laughs> to his room down, 
down in uh, hot springs. <laughs> it's probably because he likes the extrovert. It was probably not too much um, guardianship, although that might have been part of it. I think also uh, both him and I, at that point, he wasn't living here. And so we didn't get to see each other very often. Mm. And uh, we have been soul friends for six years now, uh, almost seven. And I think for us, it's just always great to connect. And so I think we were just like, oh, and then I was a little bit trepidatious at first too. And he was like, I'll come hang out. So, and that was my first experience, I think, with his fame, because in my world, he's just Mike, but in the wild goose or speaking world, he's science Mike. And it was the first time that we would walk around and people would be like, oh, because so many people <laughs> in the town were there for wild goose and it was just such a weird experience to have people sort of flip out about seeing your friend when this has just been your friend for so long and that was even before michael gunger got there and then once i was with the two of them i was like this is like crazy everybody knows who you guys are which is something that i hadn't been around either of them while they were experiencing that so that i mean for them it's no big deal but it was just funny for me to have I just know you as well, Michael, I call Vishnu Das, but I know Michael and Mike and it was weird. Uh, in fact, at one point I went into the, there's a little, actually there's another little bar. There's a little bar and cafe kind of thing that's across and uh, it was raining. And so I went in and Mike went back to his room to grab an umbrella and I went in and these people were like, oh my gosh, science Mike is right outside. <laughs> it was like he's coming back <laughs> and it was just one of those like experiences of like hearing people so amped to hear your friend about your friend and that made me really happy because I'm so proud of the work he does and who he is as a person and friend and so yeah that's how we met and that's what I was up to at that conference it was good I will make a confession I had no clue who science Mike was at the time <laughs> I, I hadn't right. heard, I, I didn't know there was just this guy with Sarah and he was really cool and we talked and it's like we connected in, in a few hours in the wee, wee hours of the morning. And then I find out, you know, he's Science Mike, he's, you know, partner with Gunger in, or as I refer to Vishnu Das now, uh, with liturgists. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. This is really yeah, cool. Yeah, I think... The thing about Mike is that he's so unassuming and he uh, is so pleasant and easy to get along with. So I think that um, it's not surprising to me that you guys all connected that first night. That was fun. Yeah. So Sarah, you wrote a book called What's Your Story? So I'm going to ask you, what's your story? What is your story? (laughs) You know, there's been a lot of iterations of my story, which probably makes it part of the story, even that that's the case. I was born in Canada uh, to a British mother and a Canadian father. And uh, my mom had lived in Canada at that point for a while. But um, I was born in Newfoundland, which is a obviously an, an island province off of Canada and eastern Canada. And then we moved to northern Ontario, about an hour and a half north of Toronto. And I grew up there in a very small town. I think it's a big part of my story because I have never fit in and in my entire life. Uh, So my parents, they're very much uh, Torontonian city people, but we lived in this small uh, rural town in Northern Ontario. And the people that are from there are absolute gems. But I lived 
in a resort community, but I lived uh, in an area where our population would triple during the summer and during the winter months, it was a very cold, small town. And so uh, kind of the idea that my parents were from Toronto and we were from the small town and yet we didn't quite fit in, if that makes sense. And then when I was 14, I moved to Mississippi, which we really didn't fit in once I got there. Uh, and so lived in Mississippi from the time I was 14 to after I graduated from undergrad. So when I graduated from undergrad, I was 21. And I went to seminary at Duke in North Carolina, having never studied theology or any of that. And that's part of my story, which I'll tap you into later. But, and then I ended up moving out to uh, Southern California, having never have lived here before, other than for a summer I worked in San Francisco. And so it was my first time with really like being in California. I was living here. So I live in Southern California. So I always feel a little bit like my uh, story has led me to places and spaces where I don't necessarily fit in. So my faith is a little bit that way. My um, friendship groups, they're very diverse and different. And I've just always sort of felt a little bit like a part of everything and yet outside of everything. And so um, when I was in college, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so I loved acting and I loved art and I loved biology and I loved psychology. So I studied all of those things. Um, ended up getting a degree in uh, psychology with a minor in biology because I didn't want to take organic chem. Um, didn't decide <laughs> to go to, I know who I said. Once I decided that I wasn't, so the reason I was doing all that was thinking about being a vet, uh, vet a veterinarian. And once I decided that wasn't sort of what I wanted to do, I think always in my heart of hearts, I knew that I was a performer or an actress, but because of the family and community that I came from, that just wasn't an option as a career. Instead, it was an option as a hobby. And so it took me a lot of time to figure out like, okay, what can I, what can I do? And so uh, it makes a lot of my friends laugh that my backup plan was to become a doctor. Um, but I kind of decided to go to seminary my junior year of, I think it was my junior year yeah, of college when I was on a beach retreat. I was a sorority girl, but I was spending most of my free time with my youth group that I was volunteering for. And we were on a youth retreat. And one kid said, uh, you know, Sarah, it's interesting. You're the only one that we all can talk to. So you fit in with the kids who play sports because you, I love that you call me an athlete, by the way, because I don't feel like I'm an athlete anymore. But I did, I played sports in, in high school. And I played um, just for fun in college. And even all the way through grad school, still played some soccer. And today I run and lift heavy things. But at that time, I, you know, I could relate to the athletes, but I could also relate to the artists or I could relate to the cool girls because that was a space that I had inhabited as well. And so he said, you know, so you're the only one that we all want to talk to because you have so much in common with all of us. Music was such a passion for me at that time. And he was a musician. And so it was just one of those things that kind of popped in my head as I was thinking about career and realizing that I just didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And I was approaching grad graduation and they make you decide, you know, your junior year, you got to declare. And so I uh, was on a beach retreat again with my own college group. And I said, huh, I think I'm being called into ministry. I think the reason why I like all these odd things is that I am able to relate to so many different groups of people. And so I uh, talked to my college pastor who said, that's great. All of us have known that for a really long time. And we are waiting for you to kind of get there. Uh, and <laughs> so that awesome. was really like, oh, someone could have told me that before I like changed my degree one more time. So that was, 
that was kind of the beginning of it, but I didn't really want to do it because for me, I hadn't, I didn't know too much about ministry, but it felt like it was a very, I mean, looking back, I think I was probably right, but it felt like a very isolating career. And so I wasn't sure that it was one that I wanted to um, inhabit. And so probably my reason for applying to Duke Divinity was that at the time it was a really hard school to get into. And I think part of me was hoping if I didn't get in, then I wouldn't have to go. <laughs> okay. Which is really a weird way to a weird way to think about your faith. But um so I only applied to one graduate school and that was Duke. I did get in and they gave me a fairly substantial scholarship as a leader and scholar. So yeah, I went to Duke having never studied any of the original languages, having never taken a class in theology whatsoever. Here I was in graduate school getting my master's in divinity with a bunch of really smart people who had known this is what they wanted to do, most of them for a very long time. And so they'd all studied Greek and Hebrew and all those things. And I was like, well, Greek to me, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> and didn't fit in, didn't fit in for those first year, at least just felt really uncomfortable. I had been really into like the indie rock scene. And that wasn't really a thing with a lot of my classmates. I just felt very lost. But at the same time, just felt like this was something. And if you read my journal from then, it's just this constant, like, yeah, I could leave at any time. I ended up staying and I had had some really profound experiences where professors just really encouraged me along the way and graduated from there in 2005. And yeah, I began looking at where I wanted to live. And since I didn't feel like I really fit in in the Southeast, um, as much as I love it, and I, you know, it's kind of like one of those things, like it's a, like a, a relative where other people are not welcome to talk bad about it. But at the same time, you know, you may not fit in it. So like people are like the selfies and I'm like, you watch your mouth. Um, but at the same time, it just, it Bless didn't, it did feel like my weird. I know it did feel like my weird uncle that uh, I just didn't feel like I wanted to move back into that space as a woman, as a woman in ministry. Um, it just didn't feel like a good fit for me. And so I moved to uh, Orange, uh, Southern California, Orange County. Um, I was invited, there was two positions out here that I was invited to take. So I was a college pastor and a youth pastor. And um, after doing that for a couple of years, uh, it became clear that my gifting really was in preaching, which was funny to me because I never wanted to take preaching in grad school, but it ended up, makes sense, right? As a performer or communicator, it makes sense that I would like preaching, but I just was so afraid that I wasn't going to be good at it or whatever. And we ended up, the church asked me to start my own service. And after that, I got moved to become the lead preaching pastor at a church down in Rancho Santa Margarita. And the rest, as they say, is history because I ended up doing that for five years and then getting asked to reboot a church that has been going through revitalization for the last two years since I've been there. So we were down to like 17 to 27 and now we're about 85 on a Sunday. So it has uh, seen a lot of growth in the last few years. Yeah. And it's a very interesting community. It's a lot of folks who, you know, uh, Mike and uh, Vishnu and I talk about the nuns and duns. They're the spiritual nomads seem to really be drawn to this church. So it's been a lot of, it's been a lot of fun, but it's been a lot of work. That's a little bit of my story. That's the story of how I became a pastor, I guess, kind of. But yeah, that's kind of my story. But at the same time, I've never felt like being a pastor was my gig. <laughs> even though I like it a lot. And uh, so about a, six months ago now, I was in a real place of saying, God, I don't know what you would have for me. I've always really been excited about the idea of having a husband and a family. And that hasn't been part of my story. 
and realizing that my job was sort of what I was married to and really feeling isolated from people. So uh, I started Sonderless, the podcast, after being challenged by my best friend to change my life in 52 weeks, or he's going to make me leave Orange County feeling like it's a very toxic place because it is a pretty conservative Christian space and it is uh, it can be a really difficult place because of superficiality and all these different things. And so he really feels compelled that the reason my life hasn't changed is that I've been living in this area. Whether that's true or not, we're yet to decide. So Sonderless is the name of the podcast. Sonder is the realization that everybody's living a different story because you know I'm story obsessed. Sonderless is wanting everyone else's story and not your own. So yeah, that's how we got here. And we're halfway through that. And so that's been um, an interesting project that's brought a lot of different storylines into my life. Some have been good. Many have been painful. We're kind of at a place of like, okay, what's next? I believe uh, you were challenged in four areas by your friend. Yeah, yeah. So four areas. The one area was that uh, I had to love my job, not just like it. Because it is really easy to like the job that I have, but it's really hard to love it. There are parts of it that I really like, but I am United Methodist clergy member, which means that we're kind of asked to do all the things, not just, if it makes sense, so not just like, hey, you have to preach, but you have to preach, teach, lead, be an administrator, be the CFO, the CEO, the CMO, like all the C's. Some of those give me life, and some of those absolutely suck the life out of me. And so there was that. I had to love my job. And I, you know, obviously I would argue with my best friend, oh, I do love my job. He's like, I don't think you do. Uh, My second thing I had to do was that I had to have friends that were more friends that were outside of my church. So what happens for me a lot is that people get to know me and then they become part of my community, which is great, but can be very isolating and difficult because no matter what, I'm still your pastor. And that's been very painful over the last couple of years. For sure, there have been situations where I wasn't allowed to be Sarah. I had to be Pastor Sarah, and um, that's been difficult. And then the third area was I had to love where I live, because I live in uh, a part of Southern California that's very family-oriented. And uh, it made sense for one stage of life I was in, but it kind of doesn't make sense now. You know, my life was headed a certain way that it just hasn't gone. And so I have this wonderful condo with three bedrooms that I live in California, so I can't afford it on my own. And so I have a roommate which is fine, but kind of, you know, my, my best friend said, Sarah, you bought a minivan when you don't even have kids. That's his uh, example of living where I live. Mm-hmm. You know, I have this condo that has great bedrooms if I had kids, but I don't. And then the other area, and probably the one that area that everybody has been most interested in is my dating life. I didn't have a dating life. And so I was challenged to start dating, which was actually very painful for me. And uh, then it wasn't, and now is very painful again. And so that's been part of the journey as well. It looks like you have some friends who really know you and who are willing yeah. to <laughs> speak truth, to challenge, of course, to support and encourage, but it looks like they care enough about you to challenge you. For sure. I think for me, uh, it was really difficult for me to think about like doing this journey publicly, but at the same time, it makes complete sense. I am a two on the Enneagram. If you know anything about the Enneagram, a two is a, I don't know if your listeners do or not, but a two is someone who um, I know for a fact that you do, but uh, <laughs> a, two, a two is someone who is just an absolute caregiver for others. And often as almost a manipulative tool 
of because you are so afraid of being alone, you make yourself needed. So your biggest need is the need to be needed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I'm a two with a three wing, but my three wing is pretty strong. <laughs> Both of us. And it, yeah. So the three is the performer that I can make all things happen person. And so I am a two with a three wing. And so, um, yeah, I had, I knew I would want to have go through these challenges, but I knew I wouldn't be as honest to them if I didn't have people checking in on me. And if I didn't have to go through it publicly, for instance, like the idea of dating again was not something I ever would have uh, embarked on in such a public way. That's just absolutely not me. You know, I, I loved being the unavailable one. You know, that was always my, you know, the protection I, I wore when I was in college, for instance, it was much easier to be unattainable than to be honest about my own needs and wants. And so I think it's been, yeah, it's been a really painful. It's been a painful season, but a, a good one, I think. Um, I don't know yet. We're actually doing a Kickstarter trying to raise funds to get the the uh, podcast finished because we have five months left and we had to hire a professional team to start taking it on because we had so many listeners, but uh, my team is entirely volunteer. And so we kind of got to a, a split in the road where they were like, Hey, we just got promoted at our jobs or we just got new jobs. We can't continue this, this thing, but we feel like it needs to keep going. We're in the midst of trying to raise $8,000, which is a lot of money, but that's how much it costs to do a podcast if you're hiring professionals. So that has been just a really interesting challenge for me to invite people to participate to invite people to support that's not something I've ever been comfortable with so it's just been a really interesting time for me this has been the most uncomfortable I've ever been one thing I did know about you uh, and I think you actually told me is you have a very difficult time in self-promotion so with this kickstarter would you tell us how people can participate? I know it's ongoing right now. You have what, five more months to go? Five more months for not for the Kickstarter. Oh no, no. Oh no, no, no. Uh, okay. The kick the Kickstarter's only thirty days. <laughs> ah, we have okay. five more months of the podcast, not five more months of the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter only has twenty eight more days. But you're welcome to give after that point too, uh, to keep it going. But we have to raise $8,000 or we get nothing. So that's how Kickstarter works. The all or nothing. And so we, because every episode costs about $500 just in editing, that amount helps pay for that. And then it also helps pay for some marketing that we've, we've already begun. And so it's kind of a risk. The whole thing has been a risk. I've put a lot of my own personal money into it and definitely a lot of my time for sure, my heart, but it's been great. I mean, the number of emails we get or letters or phone calls of people just saying like, Hey, like I'm stuck in the slander list. I'm supposed to love the life I have and I don't. And that's been, it's, it's been really hard for me to be very public about not loving my life. I think that's been a, a painful thing as well because people from the outside, I did a really great job of curating my life. And so it looks really great, but it's a pretty lonely, isolated world I live in. And so um, being honest about that has been, just a, I think it's been really helpful. Again, I'm in the, like the six month and you know, you talk about story within a story narrative. If you use Joseph Campbell's hero's journey arc that most stories are written in, in the middle, there's always, it just doesn't seem like anything could change or anything is going to be different. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in the midst of that and it's not, it's not my favorite part, right? It's the hard part. It's the, 
you know, going through the ups and downs, it's feeling like I haven't moved very much. So yeah, that, that's the Kickstarter. That's the, and every day having, um, you know, having to put myself out there, like, this is the amount of money we've raised. I feel like, um, a little bit like NPR or Jerry's kids or something like that. Like I'm constantly just like, please help me finish this thing. And it's actually my nightmare, right? It's my worst. It's the thing I don't like the most. Uh, it feels very self-promoting and very like, Hey, you love this thing. Cause you love me. And, uh, the number of people have been like, yeah, we do. We want to support you. So you can find us on Kickstarter. Just look up Sondra Lust, S O N B E R L U S T the podcast, Sandra List the podcast, and you will find our Kickstarter there um, or go on any of my social media stuff. I'm sure you'll have a link for all that there and you can find it there as well. Yeah, we will uh, put all your social media links in the show notes so it'll be easy for people to find you. I find it interesting as a two as well. You mentioned that we don't like to self-promote, but we also like to make uh-uh. ourselves needed. Yeah. I've never combined those two thoughts together. That's something to explore right there. Yeah, I think I, we don't like to self-promote because we're worried about the needs of others. And uh, it feels like if we self-promote, we're, um, we're not promoting others. That's the way I felt anyway. Um, and yet I think if, if we look at, you know, a lot of Enneagram work, you'll see that oftentimes you want to be needed by other people because it, means they're going to need you. Um, And that has definitely been my experience. I have wanted, I've taken care of people because then we're in relationship and then I don't feel so lonely. And that's not actually a great place and space to come from. And it's really interesting because two and three almost seem like they would be a juxtaposition from each other. And so I do feel that internal battle sometimes. And sometimes people don't realize even the critique people give me or things that they say that they would think would just bounce off of me don't because I think sometimes my three is really obvious and my two is my deepest. And so people will say things like Sarah is a diva and that's actually the exact opposite of what I am. Um, I'm comfortable speaking in front of people. Uh, I don't mind, you know, being the life of the party sometimes, but at the minute it feels like I'm excluding people or not. I'm winning out and as opposed to everyone being uh, appreciated, I get very, I'm in a lot of pain. I don't love that. Mm. So yeah, self-promotion is really hard for me. Again, and some of that I'm sure is baggage from being a kid and wanting to be the helper. Actually at the, at Wild Goose that year, that was a conversation Mike and I had. He said, I want you to know that you are, he said, I feel like sometimes you think you're Michael and I's like sidekick. And uh, he wasn't wrong, you know, I think because of having that experience of everybody knowing who they were, I kind of just faded into the back, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, Sarah, you are our friend. You are not our sidekick. You are our equal, if not better than us. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds And like uh, he's like, the moment you like shrink away is so fake. It's not fake, but it's not true to like our friendship. and. Uh, it, it bothers me that you would think that that was almost needed or that you needed to be our sidekick that was making sure we got to everything on time, made sure everything we did was okay. And he's like, you know, you're just one of us. You're not our handler or our question answerer, you know, kind of thing. So I remember our very beyond that first night when we all met at outside of uh, 
the Iron Horse Tavern or whatever it was called. I believe it was mm-hmm. that next morning, both of us had gotten up a little bit earlier than some of the other cabin mates. And we found ourselves downstairs yes. just talking. And mm-hmm. uh, you had let me know uh, what you were doing with the, the new church. I had discussed numerous church plants that I had been involved with and how even at that point I was rather removed from what people would consider traditional Christianity. And mm-hmm. although I remained a pastor because that is my call, I had gone to the place where I pastor people instead of pastoring a brick and mortar church. And we were, we, mm-hmm. we just, and then we discovered that we were both uh, Enneagram twos. And mm-hmm. that, that was a wonderful conversation. And at the same time, I could feel some of your, your pain. And yeah, yeah, for sure. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't give up or trade being a two for anything because I've learned to embrace it. It used to uh, frustrate me to no end uh, when, especially when I was disintegrating as a two, but two can be a beautiful, necessary gift to people as well and to ourselves. I think that's the piece that's the to ourselves piece that I'm working on right now. So I, in this journey of, um, you know, be being vulnerable and open to people and sharing my story and starting a church and being part of a church and pastoring people who have a lot of pain and brokenness, some of that reflects onto you. And if you're a two, you can also be an empath. So you take on people's feelings and I feel, mm-hmm. um, that's really me. And so I've been exhausted and, like I said, a bit of a workaholic because I think for me, work has always been where I got my meaning from. It's kind of funny. I think uh, I feel like I have to perform to deserve affirmation, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea that I could just be loved just because I'm Sarah, not because I'm Sarah who does X, Y, and Z, that's really been something that um, during this podcast and during this season of discovering like what my story really is, it has been really sort of life-giving to have some folks uh, come alongside me. And one of them, it feels like in the podcast, because it's my life and it's real time, just when I need something, someone steps into my life. So for example, um, I lost my health this year in some pretty dramatic ways. And I have always been really healthy. And so I was just getting sick all the time. Um, My body, I had to have some surgery. It was just a really gnarly time. And I was very alone in all of it when you're a two, that's like the worst to go through anything alone. You can be an introverted two, but you still want people around. Uh, I had a health coach step in and I thought originally we were just going to work on like, here's the workout plans you need to do or, and I'm really comfortable with that. Yeah. Tell me how much weight to lift. Tell me how many days a week to go to the gym. And she was like, nope, our first focus is going to be the amount of hours you sleep. And our next focus is going to be you loving yourself. And I was blown away she said you what does it look like to love yourself I wasn't able to relate to what she was saying or to even understand what it would look like to love myself because it has felt like for my most of my life I had to hustle for my worth and so um and I never bought it does it make sense I'm hustling for my external worth 
but I never even bought the hustle myself. I never thought this person was worth loving. And that's been the process of a lot of failed relationships. That's been the process of some difficult places and spaces at work. That's been the process of just, you know, succeeding externally and having lots of accolades, but no accolade was enough. And nothing made me feel, because if you don't have an inner self-worth, if you don't have the belief that you are worthy of love at your base level, every little hit just kind of narrates that same story for you. And so I thought I was getting into like, oh, here's how you eat really well and here's how you work out. But instead, I'm in the process of learning how to love this person. And I've lived in this body for 37 years now. It's been really surprising to some of my friends, not the ones who knew me really well. They're all like, yeah, actually, Mike and I had this conversation the other night. We talked on the phone for a long time. And he was just like, I don't get it. He's like, I look at you and I think in a room full of exceptional people, you are exceptional. And it brought me to tears. And I said, but why do people who I love and value just keep leaving? And it was this really honest and painful thing. And he said, I don't think that's the question. I think the question is, why do you care if they leave? Because if they don't get your radiance or they don't get like what you're about or who you are, or what you're doing then you should be okay with them going and you're not. And I think that's a real temptation of a two is to really care what other people think about you a lot, to really need people to be present, to need people to be loyal and stay around. And sometimes that means we let go of our own worth and we don't feel powerful in our own story. And that has been the biggest thing. And that's what I'm most looking forward to is loving myself because like even saying that sentence as a Canadian, like we don't loving ourselves sounds so new agey, but like loving myself in the reality of life. I think I've been waiting for someone to come along and tell me how much I'm worth. And unfortunately I've, I've let a lot of people do that and they weren't the voices I should have been listening to because their value of me wasn't based on, you know, whatever it might be. It was based on, what they needed or where they're at, you know, because we all are individual humans and individual human beings, containers doing our thing, doing the best we can and oftentimes messing it up. And I think if I don't hold on to that inner core of why my story matters, and that's why I'm so passionate about sharing that with other people when I go and speak in events, it's, it's because it's the thing I need to hear most. It's, and it's the idea of like, how do I authentically love myself? How do I own my own story? And how do I allow you to love yourself and to own your own story? Because that's the only way we're ever going to be able to get to peace or a place of really seeing or knowing the other. And uh, I had a year of a lot of failed steps where I, I made mistakes around who am I really and trying to figure that out. So, yeah, that was a long answer to you. So what are some of the things that you are trying or doing to help you love yourself? I would love to share that with you, actually, because I'm, I'm working on um, uh, letting go of other people's stories. So I social media fasted only for seven days, but it was actually really powerful for me. Part of the pain of my story has been that I have friends who are really, really great people, and they really, really have incredible relationships and families. And what I realized is that social media every day was reminding me that I don't have the things that I so desperately wanted. And I thought I was just, you know, existing with other people and loving their story and being present to their story. But really, I was in a lot of everyday 
you know, every day I was hearing or seeing the ways that life didn't feel like it was working out for me, but was working out for other people. So to love my own story meant to be present to it. And it meant not listening to other stories for a little while because we always show our best on Instagram. Right. I think that's been really fun too. Is so many people have been like, I don't understand how you don't love your life. Look at your Instagram. And I'm like, I know, but you only post the like days at the beach with the dog. And I know that like for a fact, a lot of my friends have like three kids and the idea of like being able to have a day at the beach with the dog sounds amazing, right? Shoot, uh, grass is always greener. So that was the first thing I did. The other thing I did, and this has been really uncomfortable for me, is that my health coach, and again, she's an integrated health coach. It's not just like your external, but it's in your internal as well. Just believing that all parts of our body are a whole system. And so she reached out to five of my close friends and asked them every day to send me a affirmation. And then at the end of the week, I sit down and read those and try to let them become part of me. Because what she discovered after talking with me is I'm actually not capable of affirming myself. So one of the tasks that they asked me to do is write down all the things I liked about myself and it was a really painful thing to realize that I liked things about me that were, but I always had a, but I could write down, Oh, I like this about me, but I wish blah, blah, blah. Or I like this about me, but, and so people have been sending me affirmations now for three weeks and I've been trying to let them become a part of me, but it's not been easy. So those are the things I'm doing to try to find worth and self-worth. And uh, I am trying to figure out what Sabbath looks like. Because I'm always afraid of like missing out or being forgotten. I'm kind of letting some of that go. You know, I recently had a conversation with someone and it was very clear that he was seeing me very differently than I saw myself. And my uh, internal instinct was to fight him on it and just say, that's not me. But then my learning and all that I've done over the last six months was like, I can't control what other people think of me. I can't be the referee of how people experience me. And so I just kind of had to let that be his story of me. And even if I wholeheartedly believe that that's not the person I am or my intention or whatever it might be to let him experience me that way and to let that be the story for him. uh, That's been interesting too, to not need everybody to love me. And I think that's been almost a, you know, that's that's the piece that I've learned so strongly is that when you are a two with a high three wing, you move from affirmation to affirmation, from doing really well. That Even as a kid, I always wanted to be the best. But the moment I got the award, it didn't matter. I wanted to see what was next. Um, and, and the applause never went in. It never went internally. Um, it never felt like, yeah, I never felt like it was good enough. It never have. I never have felt that. And so that's been my battle most of my adult life is feeling enough. And so that's, yeah, those are kind of the things I'm trying to do to experience that. I think it's not always worked out well, <laughs> so we're working on it, right? <laughs> yep. As you were sharing about how your coach had a few people send you affirmations, I visually saw that as mirrors around you. These people were mirrors reflecting back to you who you are. And I think mm. so very important not the huge accolades and all that, but people who know you, they act as a mirror. I, I have a number of friends, I would say a handful, that I really cherish that function in that manner. You know, having developed trust with them, having had 
relational experience to where I can say, okay, I may not be seeing this, but they see this. So I'm going to try to take that seriously and work with that because they're not just throwing praise at you, you know, or anything like that. Well, no, she, she sent them a really cool like write up about the rules for how they could affirm me. And it was basically like, you have to 100% believe this thing is true. You have to know it to be true. I think she did that because she knew I'd read the rules. And she knew that sometimes when my friends write nice things about me, my assumption is they're just trying to be nice to me. You know, one of my friends this week, one of the things she sent me was, you are absolutely brilliant. That was really weird for me to hear. And for some people, they'd be like, yeah, but you went to this school or you did this thing or you did that. But I always felt like I was middle to okay. You know, I, I did well academically. It's not that. But I come from a family of very, very bright people. And so I always felt like I was not that intelligent comparatively to my brother and my parents. I've always felt kind of a little bit like the like fun one, not the bright one. I had to let that sink in that she thinks I'm so brilliant. And she said, and the best part about it is you are so good at giving that brilliance to the world in ways they can understand. Mm. Um, I had to sit with that and go, she meant that there was no one asking her to say that she could have said something else. Like, the external praise people get all the time, right? And so it was just, it was a really powerful piece. And for me this week to try to figure out what that means to think like, yeah, I actually am very smart. What does that mean? And what does that look like? Because for me, that feels very awkward to think that I could even think that about myself. But are you learning to accept that? I think I am. I think that's part of this journey for me is going to be seeing if I can really let it wash over me and whether I can accept my truth telling friends because you're right those mirrors I haven't felt like I deserved the praise and then I have chosen people often to partner with or people to be around me that just reaffirmed the things I believed at a core about myself you are not enough and so people who treated me like I wasn't enough that makes sense like I it was a self-fulfilling prophecy and uh so now to actually look at the reality of it and go like, maybe I played a role in choosing people that kept me small or kept me feeling, kept me feeling that way because I'm quite afraid of how big I can be. You know, why am I so bad at self-promotion? Cause I'm really afraid of being seen, but I'm also longing to be seen. And I think that's a part of all of our stories. And I think it's surprising for people, especially with the vulnerability for me of the last six months, the number of people who are like, I had no idea because you have such a polished image you know, that you would have any insecurity, like you come off, like you just could take on the world. And the truth is, is I think a lot of us are very much more fragile than we present. So what does it look like to take off a mask? Yeah. So what does it look like to take off a mask and say, Hey, I'm going to take my mask off and I'm going to ask you to do the same. And then I'm going to like treat that with compassion. Can we all do that? Can we all agree to do that together? And that's, I think the power of story too, because you can't argue with story. Like, you can't tell me, Sarah, that is not a true story of my childhood or how I grew up or whatever it might be. You can simply experience it and allow you to be present to it or choose not to be, right? Right. I think one of the greatest challenges for twos, the givers, is to care for themselves at least as much as they care for others. 
And when I say oh, care, take care of and so forth, that is the great challenge of a two. Yeah. And as yeah, you said, to feel that we're worthy enough to expend our energy to care for ourselves as much as we do other people. Yeah, to feel like we're worth it. Like, I'm worth it. That's the fact of the matter. I'm worth it. Even when I don't feel worth it. So. I think it's going to be, it's going to be a really interesting thing to see. Can I, can I get to that place where I think I am without the show, without the, um, the need for uh, other people to tell me, you know, how great I'm doing. Can I just believe it at a deep level? Yeah. Can you be convinced of that? And once Mm -hmm. we are convinced, I've tasted it a little bit in my own journey. And what I've come to Mm -hmm. realize is that when we are really convinced about this or something, we don't have to seek affirmation as much. We can move with much more freedom. You know, we can function much more freely and authentically. I used to struggle with the Buddhist concept of not being attached or unattachment. Because I interpreted that as detachment for so many years. Like, I can't be detached from people. Connection is, you know, one of the most important things to me. And I fought that for a long time internally. And and like I said, I've only had some glimpses. I've only had some tastes of what it feels like to function as I function, but without doing it from a place of need and it's a beautiful taste it's a beautiful taste and that's the that is a large part of the journey i am on at this point yeah it is just this thing about like can i love myself as much as i love others can i love my story as much as i love other people's stories can i love who i am when no one is telling me i'm worth it is it possible to just externally believe that or intern, I'm sorry, internally believe that when it's not an external experience. I believe it's possible. <laughs> Absolutely. Like what, what does Rob Bell say? Once you've tasted, you cannot untaste. Once you've seen, you cannot unsee. Yeah, yeah. So what does that even look like? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. <laughs> so it sounds like you are rewriting your story. I'm now, trying to. I'm trying to see myself as the protagonist. <laughs> okay. Now, I, I did uh, jot down a quote about envisioning your life as being co-created with God mm-hmm. and as yeah. an adventure you are co-writing with God. And I mentioned that to you before we started recording, and then you put an addendum to that. What was that, if you remember? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Oh, you were co-creating with God. Yeah, the idea of co-creating with God, because it's not just like co-writing with God, but you're putting something out. Everything we do is creative. It makes something. It is something. So I think I'm co-creating with God, him and I, him and I, God and I, I don't believe in the genderedness of God, Uh, (laughs) but God and I are, are in this together and we're making something, you know? Yes. I went to this thing that Don Miller was doing about story and seeing your life as a story. And he wrote, you know, that you are a co-author with God. And I thought, that's true. But I think you're also a co-creator. You're making something. No life 
is neutral. We're all making something. Is it good? Is it beautiful? Those are kind of the questions. Is our story one that we are, um, that we're helping others? What is our story? Obviously, I'm really passionate about that. So what are you or what would you enjoy co-creating with the divine? (sighs) I love bringing wholeness and healing to other people. I love that. But what I would like in this season of my life is to really be embodied in my own story and to really, I want this to be the season where I find my human, um, where I'm able to start a family, whatever that looks like. I would like to co-create that with God. I feel like some of the pain of not trusting God for me has been that this has been a really hard one, a hard season where none of the things I prayed for came true. And in many ways, the opposite happened. And how do I learn to retrust God no matter the circumstances? And um, what does that say about the God I was experiencing and that kind of stuff? So I would like to co-create with God, A, a story that brings healing and hope to others, but one where I also experience that healing and hope on a personal level. Beautiful. Yeah. It's not just a story for other people, but that I myself, um, and it's been a long season for me of, preaching about how much God loves other people and not feeling it myself. But I think that has to do with the inability to be loved by myself. I think it's part of it. I think all of it goes together. When you tell people, whether you're preaching or teaching or in person, that God loves them, that they have value, what are you feeling at that time? Are you convinced of that? Is that truth you're telling? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I really believe God loves them. I believe the divine is in love with them. I believe that, yeah, absolutely. For other people, 100%. Why I ask that question is I have a very dear friend named Nicholas. One time, actually multiple times, I've complimented him on something about himself. And Mm. he looked at me and he goes, brother, I'm merely a reflection of you. You would not mm. be able to see that in me if it didn't exist in you. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And so when I'm hearing you say that and I'm thinking, Sarah, they're all just a reflection of you. You yeah. would not be able that's to feel hard. God's passion for them if it was not also true of you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's been the difficulty of the two, right? Is that we can really believe and be for and be champions of other people. But that same championing of ourselves is next to impossible and very uncomfortable. I'm lucky to have good friends. Like, So all of the stuff you see um, online that's sort of uh, promoting our Kickstarter, my friends have created that because they knew that I couldn't. Mm. And that's awesome. And I'm so grateful. And they're awesome that way. Like they've all been posting. The only thing, obviously the videos are me, but uh, everything else has been other people because I'm not capable of holding on to it for myself um, all the time. And it's something I really believe in. I believe in this project. I believe in what we're doing, but it's a lot for me to ask for help. And so people have just stormed in and helped and said, you can't do this. Let me do it. So I'm grateful. The value of a genuine community. Mm-hmm, for sure, and I'm grateful for that. 
when I sit down uh, preparing for a conversation, I don't have a list of like 15 things I want to ask. I, I, I have a few things, a few points, and then just let the conversation go from there. Uh, so I didn't have this huge list to ask you about. That's okay. But one question, and this may be a difficult one, and that's okay. Right now, Sarah Heath, what do you love about yourself? Oh, geez. I think right now I love about myself that I am so capable of being in relationship with other people and that I'm able to be present to other people and that making friends for me is not a hard thing to do because I do feel the presence of other people and they're, I, I love that for me, um, reaching out and making friends is not hard. I really like that about myself. Beautiful. You made it but very easy it. for me. <laughs> yeah. And, and other people I know, some of our goose friends. So this is very true. Yeah, I love to connect people. I love to share in that with people. And so that isn't too hard for me to do. Okay. Is there anything else you would like to share with the audience to help them know you better or anything you would like to share at all? I don't know. As I was going to say, I don't know that you can know me better. That was a pretty honest conversation. Um, I think we're good. Right. I'll probably have like vulnerability hangover and be like, Oh God, don't post that. Um, but again, I think I, I like the idea of my story, hopefully opening up other people to feel like they can tell theirs. Right. So I think we're good. I think that's all I needed to, as long as you feel like you've got everything you want to say out. One more thing. I would ask you to speak a blessing over the people who will be hearing this. Sure. Well, I just, uh, for me, I just pray and hope that people would get to see their own story and sense that who they are is enough. And that in hearing that other people struggle with that same thing, they would realize that that's part of humanity, that that you are enough just the way you are. Amen. So that would be my blessing. Amen. Amen.